Welcome to Brand Story Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Joining us today on Brand Story Inc. is Kristen Heitman, who was named the Chief Commercial Officer for the Dow Jones Global Media and Marketing Solutions team in December of 2017. And in this role, Kristen's responsible for driving advertising and media solutions revenue across Dow Jones products. She was previously the Chief Transformation Officer, providing business leadership to WSJ 2020, the Wall Street Journal's change management program, focused on positioning the business for future growth. Kristen joined Dow Jones in 2010, and in that time, she's led the implementation of Wall Street Journal's updated paywall strategy as GM of WSJ Digital Products, and she's held several various senior positions, including leading the global business development team, which manages Dow Jones' largest technology and social media partnerships. Her career began at Viacom, where she focused on corporate relations and Kristen, welcome to becoming, I think, the five pac member of the WSJ Barron's team on Brand Story Inc. I'm thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me, Jay. I'm thrilled to be here. Man, that's quite a bit in your bio in the last 11 years. I'm feeling pretty, uh, as we record this on November 14th, 2021, I'm feeling a little sheepish. I got up my game. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, uh, as I am with everybody that comes on, about your journey story. We talked about quite a bit that was in that bio. But explain the backstory and how you arrived at this moment as Chief Commercial Officer of Wall Street Journal slash Barron's Group. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, thanks for the opportunity to be on, Jay. And yeah, as I look back, um, I'm rounding up to 12 years at Dow Jones in the Journal. And I started right after business school. I went to NYU. And actually, my first job at the Journal I got by applying to an online job listing. So that still happens, or it did at least um, 12 years ago. And, you know, I just feel super fortunate in my career journey at Dow Jones because I've been able to do a lot of different things within the company and work on many facets of our business from um, the paywall strategy side that you mentioned to working on some of our largest tech partnerships. And, you know, I started in advertising almost 12 years ago. And, you know, with my current job, found myself back in advertising um, four years ago. So it really feels like a full circle, um, full circle moment for me. But like I said, I've just been really fortunate with the opportunity, uh, opportunities that have been presented to me and having having participated in a lot of different aspects of the Dow Jones business. Well, anytime you have a C-suite title like you do as chief commercial officer, it's such a, a well-known brand. Um, I'm very curious to delve into what I call the parental explainer. How would you explain what you do on a day-to-day basis to my mom? Sure. Um, I'd say my job is the balance of fixing the problems of today and planning for the future growth of our advertising business. So in practicality, what that really means is, you know, clearing roadblocks for our internal sales team and working to ensure our top clients receive a high level of service and balancing that work with building the plan for the future of what advertising at WSJ Barron's group looks like. So there we're talking about questions like, what's the makeup of the team? What are the skill sets we'll need? What are the products that we'll be selling and how will we price them? 
So really, it's a balance of you know fixing fires today and building for the future of tomorrow. You know, I think as in, in a C-suite, one of the challenges you have, right, is if you're driving the uh, the revenue steering wheel, is looking at that horizon. You know, it's that old adage, right? If you spend too much time on the horizon and not the dashboard, you can crash. And if you if you have your head down on the dashboard, you, you may not see the horizon. And so I'm curious more about maybe kind of the short to interim uh, range of kind of what you're doing on a day-to-day perspective. I think a lot of people can understand kind of the mapping out of the future, but what's that look like for you over like the next 30, 60, 90 days in your job? Yeah, um, I mean, this is going to sound like a cliche, but I'd say, you know, what I really enjoy about my job is that no day looks the same, mm-hmm. um, right? It's November right now, which obviously is we're in the midst of our biggest advertising quarter for the year and really ensuring that we deliver in the quarter and plan for the second half of the year. So so Dow Jones, as a part of News Corp, is on a fiscal mm-hmm. year that starts in July and ends in June. So um, ensuring that we deliver on the quarter really involves a range of activities, like meeting with counterparts on the subscription team to manage the joint paywall strategy, um, and planning for the second half of the year involves activities like meeting with our ad tech team to discuss roadmap investments and meeting with HR and finance on our talent at, talent mm-hmm. um, attraction and retention strategy. You know, it's a hot job market right now, and we're really trying to do everything we can to retain talent and also ensure we can fill our fill our open roles. And you know, this week in particular rounding out some important contract renewals that are with our top clients and, you know, Mm -hmm. set to in again in January and, um, you know, finalizing uh, an important upcoming meeting with the Dow Jones leadership team and presentation to the CEO. So it's really a mixture of Mm -hmm. of day-to-day activities, but, you know, all leading towards, you know, planning for what we have now and what's to come in the, in the second half of the year. Well, with that, I really want to pivot into kind of uh, the WSJ, and you recently published a white paper called Trust Your Decisions, and I know there are a lot of folks who suffer from the imposter syndrome out there, so the Trust Your Decisions, I I love the title of that, but it's a global study that you guys did and commissioned on business-to-business purchase decisions, and before we get into what you found, I'm curious as the backstory for why you embarked on this study in the first place. Sure. Well, WSJ is the source of truth for decision makers. Let me let me begin with that. And well earlier, played, well dropped in. <laughs> Good job, Kristen. And you know, we really are leveraging earlier work that our marketing team on the consumer um, end of the business for our subscription acquisition team. Um, it's what I'm referring to there. Mm-hmm. And and they ran a campaign called Trust Your Decisions. You may have seen mm-hmm. this in market recently. Yep. Um, this was all based on how consumers make decisions and the unique role the journal plays in readers' lives, providing them with knowledge and insight they need to take action. You know, I think during COVID, we saw that as an ever more important part of people's lives. And so what we did from an advertising perspective was translate this concept into a research study. Since much of our audience is a B2B purchase decision maker, it made sense to follow up um, and here we partnered with um, WSJ Intelligence and B2B International. Um, the research is called Trust Your Decisions, 
and the report looks at decision-making process that executives undergo when making purchasing decisions, such as you know changing tech vendors or buying new enterprise software. Cool. Well, I, I want to give a plug out there. Um, I just coincidentally, I have a bunch of presentations coming up to a group, a group of CEOs on content marketing um, and relationship content marketing. But I'm, I, I recently read a book by Donald Miller called Building a Story Brand. And it's really well done. It kind of takes the archetype, it's, it formalizes, if you will, the seven steps of any narrative that's an emotion picture and applies it to a brand. And I think you know, one of the most common mistakes that brands make that he articulates that you just kind of showed a great example of one that does not make the mistake is many brands try to be the hero as opposed to the guide. The customer's the hero, be the guide, right? And right. that trust your decisions um, is like right on the nose, two by four of kind of that guide mentality, right? Like being there for people. And so right. I, I, I'm excited to dive into kind of the anatomy of B2B decision journeys. And, and I'd love for you to kind of dissect away what you found. And, you know, just for some context, um, I mean, I have the pleasure of looking at this. Um, we can link to it. But, you know, kind of the anatomy of the B2B decisions, right? It's like you've got the pre-decision going through the funnel, the outcomes, and some things that were really, um, you know, jumped out at me. I mean, you had the second point was there's different types of emotional connections, which differentiate winning versus losing. And then the impact of content types and the media exposure on the decision dynamics. So dig in for us. What did you, you went in with probably a preconceived notion or maybe not, and you came out of this with some really rich information. What jumped out at you that you want to share with our audience? Sure. Thanks, Jay. And, and actually, I just jotted down. I'm going to um, have our team read that book, Building a, Building a Story Brand. But yeah, you mentioned you know pre-decision to trigger stage. Those are the different phases that we looked at, at, with the trigger being the development that convinces the decision maker it's time for a new B2B purchase. You know, we wanted to look at the top triggers. What is a company, when a company decides it's in market for a new B2B solution, you know, really no surprises here. We found that the number one trigger was the company's internal growth plans, either through expansion, mm -hmm. relocation, or a new market entry. Other top triggers included industry changes, either from a competitor activity or regulatory changes or internal finance triggers, such as you know, budget surplus or reallocations of money. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you asked about a surprising one. I would say a surprising one for us was that the expiration of an existing vendor's contract was cited by close to you know, a third of respondents globally but it wasn't the number one trigger in any region or purchase category. Mm -hmm. So a company might find itself in the market to engage a new solution or a vendor at practically any point, meaning the B2B marketers would benefit from an always-on marketing strategy to their high-value targets. This is particularly true because when a company does decide to start a formal RFP process, they've already narrowed the potential brands to just a small handful. Um, and these are companies that they probably already have some emotional feeling or connection to. Yeah. So, in a, oh, sorry, go no, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to summarize with, you know, in other words, the vast majority of vendors, if you're hoping to get in at the RFP stage, it's, it's probably already too late because if they're not familiar with you already, then you're not on their short list. Yeah, I, I want to dig in on that. Um, and by the way, just great stats to your point, right? Like, 
the trigger for buying, right? The the was was pretty interesting. All the stats that you had, right? Like and the fact that expiring contract came in f tied for third out of the list. There's there's some really neat data in here. But the one that really jumped out at me that I want to spend the most of our time talking about is the emotional connections that differentiate winning and losing brands. Explain that and what you found. Sure. Um, you know, our research found familiarity is foundational in the decision journey. So decision makers are more than twice as likely to report familiarity with the winning versus the losing brand at the very outset of the process. And the implication for marketers is that marketing and customer engagement starts long before the decision journey. So like I said, always on approach and emotions, notably trust and confidence mm -hmm. are super important. Um, there's a significant trust advantage held by the winning brand that is maintained and really stays relatively constant throughout the entire decision journey. And so therefore, a brand's marketing should focus on both developing strong familiarity, but also really engender positive emotional connections, especially trust well before the buyers are consciously engaged in a new decision process. I think the one thing that I love there, and admittedly, my day job, my day job is in the business right. of creating always on media solutions for clients, but like you keep using that always on. And I, I thought right. something that was interesting here as I'm looking at the stats, stats it was like 73% of folks that were surveyed said, it's reassuring to keep seeing and learning about a brand as I go through the buying journey. And to your point, not knowing when they're going through the buying journey or when they're gonna start, like score one for always on, right? And then it talks about 68% said content about brands is more trustworthy in business news and trade media than from the brand on the brand's website. Um, and I wanna point out those two stats because I think sometimes our listeners, self-included, we get trapped in our own silos, right? Like if I'm out doing a presentation on content marketing, it's not at the exclusion of marketing, right? Like there's almost this like zero sum, you know, I've seen a lot of people like, oh, you go into content marketing because it's more effective and less expensive. I think of it as a pie slice in the overall pie chart. and of, you know, keep doing it. If you want to advertise with the Wall Street Journal, this, and it's probably one of the reasons you guys did this, it's like, yeah. here's some third-party data to support. No, the buyer journey, it's a heightened awareness. If someone's gonna buy a new product or service and they're, they're finding your content through content marketing, that's great. If they're being reinforced, being either covered by you or advertising with you, there's that, to your point, I think those are some of the, if this is my poor man's interpretation of what you're saying and what I read, that's what we're talking about, winning brand versus losing brand. Am I, how am I doing? Oh yeah, I think you're spot on. That's, um, thank you for that summary. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're saying. And, you know, another interesting thing I think that's worth notable, particularly in the context that you're drawing for content marketing, that really, you know, trust and confidence, particularly through case studies or videos and thought leadership research are highly effective. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, those as mechanisms and content areas for describing the winning brand, uh, you know, we also found is really important. So Kristen, I think one of the things that was interesting here was kind of the different stats and facts that you had in terms of both the content types and content places that really were of highest impact. Would love your take on 
kind of, um, you know, the, the, the headlines there, and I think you had it in three buckets, right? You had one bucket pre-decision, the second bu bucket being kind of to get into the short list, and the third being the final decision stage. So what jumped out? Yeah, th thanks, Jay. So as I mentioned, the content types, you know, case studies, videos, and thought leadership really um, rose to the top. And then in terms of content and media exposure, the media channels preferred by B2B decision makers mm -hmm. include brand websites, business news and trade media outlets, and social media platforms. Probably no surprises in those three areas, but interesting that exposure to both winning and losing brands in business news and trade media sources elevate trust decision makers have in these brands. So even the brands that don't win are able to make significant gains in trust through exposure and business news and media. Um, these brands therefore stand a much better chance of emerging as a winner in future buying journeys, mm -hmm. right? Because remember the, the research shows that actually the search for a new vendor happens every one to three years, which is also an interesting and I think somewhat surprising um, output of the research is that that's a pretty short time frame, yep. right? Um, for some of these big decisions to be happening, so that almost like as uh, you know, if it's as short as one year, um, as soon as a new partner signed up, really they could be looking for another one relatively quickly. So, having um, built trust and confidence through these different um, media outlets and trade publications will really help in the long term, even if. Um, a brand isn't picked for the winner in the first round. Kristen, I would love to talk about the content types, right? One of the things that you guys really did a lot of deep research on was the, and I get this question asked all the time, so this is going with your permission into my presentations, um, the impact of content in media exposure and decision dynamics. Which, which decision maker, what are the types that decision makers prefer? What did you find? Um, thanks, Jay. Yeah, we evaluated all sorts of different content types, everything from, you know, case studies, video, audio, interviews, infographics, and, you know, looked at it from several different stages, right? Pre-decision, search, final decision, mm -hmm. um, and case studies in the pre-decision really came out on top, um, but shortly following case studies were formats like video, thought leadership and research um, being the top three. Yep. And then, you know, some similarity when you look at search and where the shortlist is being evaluated. So, you know, again, case studies and video really important, but here, you know, one-on-one -on -one discussions and infographics and editorials or opinion pieces were also important. Um, I think that's an important thing, Kristen, right? Because mm -hmm. there's context. Like you and I are looking at uh, a beautiful visual, um, which I'll put in the in the show notes at, at teamworksmedia.com on the Brand Story Inc. page. But there are um, the number one performing piece of content was case studies. And again, it was broken down into pre-decision, what gets you to shortlist and final decision. And 30% preferred case studies in the pre-decision, 27% in the shortlist, and 26% final decision. Videos was second, but it was like 28%, 27%. So we're, we're, there's a little bit of splitting hairs here, right, as we're ranking them. I thought it was pretty interesting, right? Like thought leadership and research being about 25% was right there with webinars. And then 
testimonials was right there as well. And so it's kind of like this, I think a lot of um, marketers crave this magic bullet of, you know, how many case studies, how many videos. And, and I think one of the things I took away from this is like, while it's not all of the above, they're, they're clearly, I, I was surprised by this stat, I guess is where I'm getting at. I'm surprised that there wasn't a bigger delta between case studies and videos and say like um, infographics or news articles or advertising. And it was, I don't know. I mean, was that surprising to you? I guess, honestly, no, because I think the mix is important too, right? I yeah. mean, I think uh, another interesting element here is that there isn't one silver bullet, right? right that's right. going to work for everybody all the time. I mean, I think that's what's interesting is depending on the brand, depending on, um, you know, the circumstances and timing that a lot of, if utilized well in the right channels, a lot of these different content types can be highly effective. Um, and so there, I wasn't that surprised. Um, I guess the um, what was more surprising was, um, you know, things like audio just weren't. Yeah. I would have expected that to be higher. To yes. be honest, agreed. Right. Um, but but you know, I think probably if we did this study again in a year, uh, that that might change. And audio, given you know the rise in popularity for podcasts and and um, just as we all start getting back to commuting, um, we, that that this mix might change. Yeah, and they clearly haven't listened to Brand Story Inc. yet, or those numbers would uh, be juiced, right? So, <laughs> well, you know, uh, I'm curious, Kristen, as a you know chief commercial officer, it's at at the level you're at. So you commission this. What are you guys doing with this information? How are you putting it into practice for yourselves? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, and we are looking at um, the products that we have and the products that we're going to be developing in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Now that we understand the purchase decision journey and the content consumed by decision makers, we're able to really apply more intelligence and proprietary ad tech um, to existing products that we have, like Thematic powered by DJID. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think uh, my colleague David Minkin may have been on Brand Story talking about Thematic previously. Um, but really this research superpowers that for us because now we've got the ability to target audiences when they're at those B2B purchase decision moments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and just a bit more on thematic, it's our patented taxonomy tool, which allows us to effectively gauge users intent and serve advertiser messaging against 65 plus and growing distinct themes. Mm-hmm. Um, and because this is um, built into our ad tech, really the benefits are speed. You know, we can immediately target functionality, accuracy, brand messaging appears alongside relevant content and scale, which, you know, we have the number right. of important articles your brand can align with. So we're trying to use the research to really supercharge some of our existing um, existing products and then you know, we're in, in uh, brainstorming mode for how we can further re- use this research on future products. Well, I think uh, it's one of the reasons I, I really should repackage, I should practice what I preach um, and repackage the WSJ Barron's group series because I think, you, like I mentioned, you're the fifth, um, the fifth 
person from the company to come on and we've looked at it from every angle, right? We've looked at it from the ad tech angle. We've looked at it from the brand content studio. You're looking at it through the commercial lens. And it's one of the reasons I love having you and your colleagues on. It's that I, I really believe you guys are at the forefront of kind of the art and science, right, at scale. And how, you know, I mean, like with Paul, one of the things I talked about from the content studio side was just like, I mean, you guys are at our level now where there aren't many people that I'm able to have this conversation with where, okay, great. I, I think we use the example. He's like, we know who's reading our, you know, at least anonymized. Would they, you know who's reading the energy sections, right, of your right. Wall Street Journal. But, like, really, I think to your point of, like, where things can go when you have an understanding of content types, understanding of buyer journey, I really believe, like, the next gen of this is, like, overlaying the Venn diagram of passion. I think we talked about like if there are classical music lovers or violinists, like there are these key insights that can emerge from people who, you know, it's okay, you have awesome kick butt info for the person who cares about the energy sector, but what are their shared interests? And I, I really think that's kind of like the next gen of B2B marketing is is finding those passion points for folks. And between your ad tech your editorial sensibility, the brand trust that you have, and you know, kind of consumer insights. It's it's kind of a neat package of of how you guys look at the world. And so that's why I'm so excited to have you on. And uh, I, I'm just curious about what you look at. Like, I want to take a minute and as chief commercial officer, what's on the horizon for you? What are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, I think we are looking at scaling our business. We have had you know, tremendous growth over the past two years mm -hmm. in particular, um, which has been, you know, great and exciting to see, particularly, you know, in a post-COVID world. So we're re really looking at how do we scale our digital advertising business in particular, um, and how do we collaborate with the rest of our colleagues to grow our video, to grow our audio, um, to really mm -hmm. be where our audience um, wants us to be. So I think, you know, we are in the super fortunate position from an advertising industry point of view to have a membership business with a lot of information about who's reading our content, when and where. Mm -hmm. And we really want to apply that first party data to our digital advertising solutions in a more scalable way than we've, than we've achieved so far. So a lot of exciting things on the horizon from a first party data perspective, from a video audio perspective, where we're really seeing the demand from advertisers coming. Awesome. Okay, now as we home stretch here, two personal questions. Uh, one's kind of businessy. We have a segment called Morning Musts. And so I'm just curious, what does your email inbox look like in the morning? How do you consume news, whether it's email newsletters or social media follows? How do you stay on top of your day job? Sure. Actually, I am a late convert to Slack, um, but you know we've had a big initiative over the last six months to get the whole team on Slack, and so I would say that's really gotten me out of my email inbox mm. in a way I didn't expect it to, but in a super helpful way that um, now I feel like I'm more on top of the things that I need to be on top of instead of you know down into the. Um, you know, hundreds of emails that I get a day. Mm -hmm. So that has been like very effective. And I, again, was skeptical at first that it would, um, you know, change how I work, but it, it really has. And then um, from a, from a newsletter and, you know, industry news perspective, 
Um, obviously, I follow CMO Today from the Journal. And, well played. Uh, I do too. Yep. yep. Um, and uh, read that in newsletter. But um, I all, and I've been commuting a bit more to the office um, over the past two months than than I had been previously, and definitely that's where I am listening to more podcasts. So that, that's where I suspect the audio format might change in yep. our future research. But um, I really like Recode Media with Peter Krofka. I think mm-hmm. he does a great job um, of of bringing on interesting guests and. Um, just talking about what's happening in the industry um, in a timely way. Awesome. And then final question for you. This is my poor man's Goodreads. The bedside yeah. bookstand, what's on it? What are you reading for fun? Um, so two things. One for fun that I actually just started this weekend, um, Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. Okay. I don't know. It's excellent. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, what's the headline on it? Okay, so it is takes place in three different points in time um, and follows three different main characters and mm. how their lives intersect. It's great. So well written. Awesome. Um, and then I'd be remiss if I didn't say I'm also reading um, The Cult of We, which is the um, you know well-covered WSJ story on the rise and fall of WeWork. Mm-hmm. Um, another great read. Um so uh, I, I highly recommend that too if you're shopping for any holiday book ideas. Awesome. Well, Kristen Heitman, I cannot thank you enough for spending some time during the busy time of the year uh, to share your insights on, on the white paper, trust your decisions, and just in general, um, sharing your, your wisdom. And so if people want to follow you uh, on social, best place to find you or connect with you would be? Um, LinkedIn. Great. Uh is definitely the best place. Um, I am uh, not that I'm. I'm probably uh, off off script. Not that active on social. So um, so LinkedIn is definitely the best place though where I do engage. Awesome, Kristen. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Brand Story Inc. We'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.